speaking with Dr. Henning Hillman, a professor of economic sociology at the University of Mannheim. He is a faculty member of the Mannheim Center for European Social Research. Dr. Hillman is also the author of a new book, The Corsairs of Saint-Malo. That's what we're here to talk about today, but first things first, of course, I really need to tell you about another great show in the Big Heads lineup. It's called the Quiz and Hers podcast, hosted by Josh and Haley, and if you like the drama of quiz shows like me, and the drama of a relationship where two people try to challenge each other, well, let me tell you this is definitely the show for you. Quiz and Hers is one of many podcasts you can find on BigHeadsMedia.com, of course. And at any rate, here's a preview so you can learn a little more about the uh, Quiz and Hers show yourself. In 1957, Laika became the first animal to orbit Earth. What kind of animal was Laika? What is the only team in the Big Four North American Sports Leagues which shares its name with one of the Avengers? And here's one more question for you. Are you the type of person who enjoys playing trivia games, learning new things, and having a bit of fun along the way? If you are, or if you just want to find out the answers to those other questions, then our podcast, Quiz and Hers, might be right up your alley. Each week, one of us writes new trivia questions for the other person, covering everything from science to history to pop culture to sports. And every question in a game relates to some theme, like Game of Thrones, internet memes, sandwiches, or animals in space. Some of the themes make more sense than others. So if you like trivia, learning, or real couples testing each other's knowledge and patience, check out our podcast, Quiz and Hers, part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Quiz and Hers, the trivia podcast where we test each other's knowledge and the strength of our relationship. Okay, we should be live. Uh, Dr. Hillman, Henning, if I may, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, well, first things first, we're here to talk about your book. Would you like to talk about that? Uh, what, it, what is your book about and what are some of the arguments you make? Well, thanks for the invitations. It's going to be a pleasure. I think so. And um, of course, there are lots I of agree. things to say about this book. Um, and well, it's mainly about this curious enterprise in the uh, late 17th century and 18th century um, in early modern Europe which is called privateering in English. So um, it's essentially about merchants who during wartime get a license from their respective sovereign, their state, um, to rape the uh, commerce ships of uh, the declared enemies at that time. So they look a little bit like pirates and lots of people confuse it with piracy. It isn't really piracy because it's uh, bounded by law. There are strict regulations. um, They have to put down something like a security deposit so that they behave accordingly. They have to respect neutral rights and so forth. But otherwise, they prey on the commerce ships of um, their enemies. 
um, capture them and also the, 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 the precious cargo, bring them back to their home ports in most cases. And there they will be judged by an um, admiralty court to be good prices. And then these people who captured the prices um, will auction them off, uh, will be a public sale. And the proceeds of that sale go to the partners that have invested in the partnership to finance this privateering voyage in the first place. So this is what it all revolves around. Um, the military aspects to it, but I'm not that interested in it because I'm an organizational sociologist. So my real question is to what extent did this kind of curious enterprise contribute to the bonding together to the uh, social cohesion, as we say as sociologists, the social cohesion of this merchant community in that particular place. The place is called Samalo. It's a beautiful city perched on an island, a rocky island on the coast of, of Brittany in France right reaching right out to the um, English Channel. Mm. So it's, it's a small place. Um, it was pivotal at the time for the uh, French Atlantic economy. <clears throat> so connected all the different trade routes that went from Europe to the Americas, the Indias, um, to China and so forth. And um, the question I'm asking is to what extent did this particular enterprise privateering contribute to their social cohesion um, cohesion was important at the time because A, there were lots of wars going on, so they had to defend themselves. Um, you're better defending yourself if you do this collectively as a community. Um, second, um, they were also competing with other French port cities at the time for exclusive trading rights, monopolies, for instance. And in order to get them, of course, you have to mobilize collectively. So that will help cohesion as well. And then lastly, um, in order to um, launch these partnerships for overseas trade and for privateering, as the name says, right, you need to set up partnership because it's costly and you want to spread the risk, for instance, of losing your ship in a storm or to pirates and so forth. So you need to pool the resources, mainly money, for instance, huh? And um, you also want to spread the risk. So you want to form partnerships. And you know, what you rely on to find adequate partners, you need to have an extensive network. So their cohesion also plays a role. So there are a couple of reasons why cohesion is important in this place. And I'm just asking to what extent does privateering contribute to that? And it turns out it's absolutely crucial in this place. Without yeah. this privateering enterprise, you won't see sufficient cohesion in this community. That's in a nutshell what this book is all about. Oh, uh, no, no, that's uh, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, no, and I, I was struck by uh, especially you mentioned the the partnerships you'd need to build, how uh, I mean, you could make some extraordinary uh, profits doing this, but the risks were also uh, it was kind of an almost sometimes an all or nothing proposition if you if you uh, uh, were involved um, any anyway. Uh, I think, uh, and I want to apologize also to anyone listening to uh, I, uh, my French pronunciation is going to probably sound horrible to some people. Um, but uh, Saint Malo is is that correct? <laughs> if I'm if I'm pronouncing that uh, vaguely correct, uh, uh, I, I th thought the city itself has a pretty interesting history, um, and you give a pretty good overview of that. Would you like to share some of that uh, with the audience? Yeah, uh, where to begin? I mean, we can begin. Yeah, very please, please uh, do. Yeah, I, yeah. you know, I, I think so, that that foundation of the shipping industry just generally was uh, pretty cool yeah. to add. 
of course, the ancient history is kind of shrouded in mystery, as with most places. So it seems to go back to some very old um, Celtic um, community that used to be there. Then it was um, a Roman garrison back in ancient times, and uh, it you know it changed hands many times. But the real foundation of the city, go and this is actually where the name comes from. <clears throat> um, in there is Malo, which is, refers to a person who was an ancient bishop, um, actually, who came over from Wales originally, somebody called Maclo or Maclu, there are different pronunciations, and, um, and he came over to Brittany um, in order to convert, of course, the local people to Christianity. And eventually um, he became a saint and hence Saint Malo. So he's a patron saint of uh, one of the patron saints of Brittany, but he was a real person. Um, was he, the, I think he was the first or the second um, bishop of that area. And um, there used to be a town um, on the mainland um, that was first founded, which is today a suburb of Saint Malo. That's where the first um, see of the uh, bishopry was. And then eventually they moved over to this little island um, that is now the old city of Samalo. So that's where it's coming from in the Middle Ages. And then it slowly evolved into the major trading port that we know it to be these days. And um, its, it's, uh, it's strongholds were in, first of all, the uh, Spanish trade. So um, what they did is basically they um, picked up the cargo that the Spanish would bring in from their colonies in the Americas and then would um, buy them off in uh, ports in Spain and bring them to the rest of Europe. Um, this is what um, the Samalo merchants mostly engaged in. The second stronghold was in uh, the cod fisheries off of Newfoundland um, up there. So um, um, lo lots of the places there still have um, you know, connections to Samalo these days. And also, um, oh gosh, I should know this, but um, one of the major explorers was actually a citizen of uh, of Sao Malo back then. Um, oh, yeah. Oops, I should remember the name. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's right now. He's actually very famous. Um, who explored um, the area around Quebec and Montreal. Um, also, I should um, probably know too. Um, yeah, we can look anyway. This up. Yeah, maybe one of our listeners will will. Right, right, know. right. Yeah, for sure. So cod fishing is, is the other major um, staple trade that they were engaging in. So basically they, they were fishing for the cod. Um, it used to be uh, the case that they dried it and then transported back to Europe and in the Catholic countries, of course, on Fridays, cod was um, a favorite dish, right? Um, especially dried cod. So they would ship it off to Spain again, to Italy, Portugal, and so forth around the Mediterranean. And on the way back, they would bring um, all sorts of goods from the Mediterranean back to Northern Europe. So those are, you know, this is where it all started. And um, later on, it developed in different areas. They benefited enormously from war. That's the interesting twist. So we normally think that um, when war breaks out, that's really no good for trade. You know, we want to have a stable political environment that protects trade. But it turns out it's really a strange twist here that yeah. war opened a lot of opportunities for trade and for exploration. And especially Samalo thrived on that. So one was that I said earlier that they took up colonial goods from the Spanish ports. Mm -hmm. 
The reason it was before the war that they were not allowed, legally speaking, to trade directly with the Spanish colonies because that was a monopoly for Spanish trade. Yeah. During war, however, <laughs> that didn't matter. So, you know, they just did what's called interloping trade. So they, um, legally speaking, they did illicit trade with the um, South American colonies directly circumventing the Spanish traders. And, and it's interesting to note that the local traders, of course, in South America didn't mind that at all. You know, right, yeah, yeah. Best, uh, to get the best prices. So that's what they did. Um, they explored all these areas. And along the way, they did these privateering enterprises as well, you know, robbing all the ships that crossed their way. Um, they also made their way all, all along the coast and um, towards China as well. And another dark chapter is the slave trade. Yes. Um, so um, there used to be a time when most people thought of Saint-Malo as this kind of romantic town of privateers. They were equated with, with pirates. And it's kind of yeah, a romanticized image. You know, there, there mm -hmm. are these swashbuckling guys that uh, going on into heroic sea fights, etc. And um, being told that there were also slave traders is, of course, not such a nice story. Right. But that was also the case. I mean, they were not the most important port when it comes to slave trading, but they engaged in that as well. And at some point in history, they also held the monopoly for the trade with India and China. So the French East India Company used to be a monopoly held only by merchants from Samalo for a time. All this were opportunities that um, occurred with the onset of war. And we're talking here about the wars that started in the 1680s yeah. under the Sun King, Louis XIV, and continued all the way until the American Revolutionary War and the French Revolutionary War. So that, that's kind of you know, a quick run through the history of that place and um, what they did besides privateering. Yeah, and uh, yeah, no, thank you for that. And I, I, I just, uh, I, I really, I th thought that was uh, very interesting for those of you who, uh, if you get the book too, uh, just as a, and as a family of, uh, coming from a family of fishermen, I especially uh, enjoy just some of the information you got about uh, this kind of a little, off topic, but about just the number of fish that a person would be expected to catch in a day. Um, if you're wondering about the uh, impact that we can have uh, on the environment, uh, that's really as, as <laughs> you just need to look at that. Uh, but I, I, I want to say it was like hundreds of fish in a day uh, would be the best day of my life ever as a fisherman. Um, and that would be like an average day for some of these guys. Granted, I guess they're probably using nets and everything too. I, I, I don't know. But anyway, uh, I, I thought some of that was very fascinating. Um, but I, I also thought it was pretty interesting that uh, uh, the city itself faced, I mean, I, I think invasion or destruction, speaking of some of these wars at several points, um, I think if you were a citizen of Saint-Malo, you might be very concerned that uh, your home could literally be burned to the ground, let alone you being yeah. dead. I, was this was it more dangerous than some of the other French communities uh, in the 18th century? Uh, I mean, was I guess would it be more? Is there a greater threat of invasion at Saint Malo than maybe some other parts of uh, the French coastline? 
No, like I wouldn't say you know just as much as any other city. Probably. Yeah. Uh, it, they were just rather successful in defending themselves, or that most attempts were aborted eventually. Right. Um, and also, if, if you look at the city today, you see it's surrounded by these really thick walls. Um, this is one thing. Then the, um, the, the passageway to get to the harbor, it's a natural harbor, um, but to get there, um, it's, it's strewn with little islets. And it's rather dangerous to get to that place. So you need to have good local knowledge of how to maneuver your ship into that harbor. Okay, yeah. And see, I do not have that local. That's why I'm asking. I have no idea. But, you know, many an enemy got stranded there. Um, and the other thing is, as far as I remember, it has um, about the highest tides in all of Europe. So that has also be taken into account. So in that sense, um, by nature alone, it's, it's a pretty tricky place um, that you need to maneuver around. But I guess it wasn't any more dangerous than places like, say, La Rochelle, for instance, and others. And so it was never really destroyed except for World War II. So uh, my fellow countrymen, Germans, um, during the uh, Second World War, uh, made a point of setting up a garrison in Saint-Malo, hoping, of course, that it would be spared because of its historical significance, etc. So the Allies, to get rid of that nest of, of Germans right there, had almost no choice but to bombard the place. Okay. And it was destroyed, I think, by the Royal Air Force and the American Air Force, um, I think it's up to 90% of the city was destroyed. Mm. So what you see these days is a reconstruction. So after the war, um, the French had to decide, so either you know, we build a new city someplace else or we reconstruct it. And luckily enough, they had the old blueprints, the old plants. So they did know how to build it up from scratch again, using the same materials. And so these days, if you visit it, it's, I think it's one of the major tourist attractions in France these days. Yeah. After Marcel-Michel and after uh, Paris, it's the third most visited place in France. Oh, neat. And um, it, it's a beautiful city. So they were um, quite successful in rebuilding it. But that was the only time it was really destroyed. Um, all the other attempts uh, were aborted or not successful. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, you mentioned uh, just a, an individual, uh, Rene, if I'm pronouncing his last name right, uh, correctly, uh, Duguay Tron, as uh, one of San Malo's most infamous citizens. And uh, yeah. I, I, so who, who, who is uh, this gentleman? I think uh, some of the listeners would probably yeah. get a kick out of hearing about him. So uh, Duguay Tron was probably the most... Uh, significant privateer or corsair as it's called in French. Um, next to Surcouf, that's the other one, Robert Surcouf, um, who would be really successful um, during the Napoleonic Wars. So uh, almost a hundred years later, but yeah. Duguay-Trouin was, um, he was most famous for sacking Rio de Janeiro. Um, so most of these privateering enterprises, we don't, we, we should not imagine like an old Arrow Flynn movie where there's uh, the, like right. a dramatic fight <laughs> going on, something like that, right? And uh, again, no swashbuckling tales, but rather uh, modest ships that go out in the fog and prey on equally modest merchant ships in the English Channel. Yeah. Uh, that's most of the story that you read in the uh, captain's journals. But sometimes there were these, you know, enormous... Um, events happening as well. And he was involved in one of those. So he got together um, an entire fleet of privateering ships. 
um, frigates, not just small ships, but real frigates. Um, and he also got them on loan from the French Royal Navy. And some of them were privately financed. And I don't know how many ships they were in total, but it was an entire fleet. Yeah. And so he went across the Atlantic and had nothing better to do than go straight to the harbor of Rio de Janeiro, sacked the entire city, took everything off he could probably find, um, and set it off in other places and robbed everything that crossed his pathway. And uh, of course, such a tale you know, made him a naval hero back in France, of course. Right. But that's an extraordinary story. Yeah. Um, but to this day, um, there's still a little statue in Saint-Malo. So when you wander around, you will bump into this little statue that you see there. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I, I, I always, I, I like to give uh, the people listening uh, as much excitement as I, as I can now. But with that said, I do want to mention also uh, just you're the only one who can see me. But if I sound a little funny for people who are listening, it's been very windy this past week in Denver. And I did not have chat. I've been outside a lot and I didn't have chapstick. And my upper lip here is so if, if, if my smile also looks a little funny is why I'm saying that, uh, Henning. Uh, sure. uh, if I said I don't know if it I, I don't think it's affecting me, but uh, it uh, I, I have a very chapped lip right now. It's <laughs> all I have to say. Now, with that said, at, at risk of putting I think this stuff is fascinating at the risk of putting people to sleep. I want to talk about. Uh, quantitative history. You got some really great uh, data in the book, some great graphs and, and, and charts and stuff like that. And what is, you know, there's different ways to write a, a, a history book. And, and so this, I guess, question hopefully might uh, help some students out there um, who, are, who are listening to this. But um, what does that approach of, of, of taking these these uh, numbers, getting these statistics, um, how how difficult is that? And, and what does that allow you to to say that otherwise you would not be able to say, I guess? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if I, you know, I, I, I think you understand what I'm what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah. OK, um, I, I, try I would to say like understand. rather than just looking at like a. A, a traditional, like the, just the journals and court proceedings of the past, I guess, or, or something right. like that. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, one of my main interests is to show that this privateering enterprise uh, played an important role in uh, maintaining um, the, the, the social cohesion of that community. Yeah. So uh, people can, may have kind of an intuitive understanding what social cohesion means. So people bonding together, you know, having things in common, having relationships with each other. And how do you measure that? You know, I guess we all have some sense of what that might mean. What is a community? So you know, when is there a community when we see one? What is our standard by which we measure that? Yeah. And um, I guess that's where quantitative analysis comes in. Of course, you can do this by reading, as you suggested, the journals of some of these people, for instance, and they might say, oh, the other day I bumped into this kind of person and we decided that we're going to um, put up a venture together. And then maybe you find some letters somewhere where they have connections to others. So you get an insight, which is mostly anecdotal, into a few people that tells you a lot about these few people but it usually doesn't tell you a lot about the community at large. Now, does this 
what you found about these handful of people apply equally to the majority of the members of that community, yes or no? How would you know? Unfortunately, um, most of the letters and journals that are preserved over the course of history are those of most you know, famous people, of illustrious people, right? Yeah. Preserved because of that. So we have little insight into the uh, more ordinary partners that are also involved. So our interest would be to say, well, can we get a more systematic picture of what was going on and what leads to cohesion in that community? And not, not even if you're just not interested in, say, in cohesion per se, but also if you want to know more about the systematic functioning of early capitalism in this place. Now, if we do know that partnerships were so important, how were they formed? How large were they on average? How many of these partnerships were there in fact? How long did they last? And what kind of trades were they? So all, all of these questions can really only be answered in a systematic manner um, if you use quantitative history. Okay, that's fine. But then the next question is, so where do I get the data, the information from to enable such an analysis? And um, in this particular case here, um, we're lucky enough that we have an enormously important and rich source, which in this case are the contracts that people wrote for their um, venture partnerships. So whether this be in slave trading, for instance, they would set up partnerships of say 12 people who would come together, the ship owner, a captain, and then partners um, who would become shareholders in that partnership. So they would contribute money and in return got shares in that partnership. And once this ship returns to the harbor with all the proceeds of the voyage, they would share the proceeds according to what they put in in the first place as shareholders, right? And this applies to the slave trade, this applies to privateering, this applies to the Spanish trade, the East India trade and so forth. Um, and so I was lucky or we are lucky enough, everyone can use these sources that um, a very large number, we're talking about thousands here of these contracts have been preserved from about 1680 until about the 1790s. So a good hundred years um, are there to be explored. So there are all these um, contracts. The contracts will tell you the date when it was happening. Um, it will tell you who the captain is. It will tell you what kind of ship that is, how many tons, how many people on board, how many cannons if necessary, where the ship has been built or where it has been bought from, um, who is the owner or the owner. Sometimes there were there was more than one person, say two, three, had, a, uh, had their ownership. Um, and then the partners would be listed with their names, the shares they held, and sometimes even the monetary amount that they put into the voyage partnership. There were also um, often clear instructions of what the purpose of that venture was, where they were supposed to go, because they combined different, um, different def destinations and different trades very often. And um, there's also usually a closing date. Uh, and so all that information, these are legal documents. So they have the advantage that they follow a certain default format. Yeah. So when reading them, you kind of know what comes next in the document. Yeah. They're about one, two pages long typically, and um, they are bound in volumes. They're all handwritten documents. Yeah. So it's, it's handwritten language. Um, it's in French. You have to be able to speak French. Um, right. But but it, it is kind of like a, a, a legal 
French. So it, it's rather easy to follow. It's very formula, right. formulaic. Um, and so what I did is essentially I went into these archives. Um, I took photographs of all of these documents. You don't want to go in there with your computer and then type by hand this information into yeah. your spreadsheet. So you do want to take pictures of that, bring them back home, and then you start coding it into a spreadsheet, essentially, yeah. where you have entries. Each person is um, involved in what kind of venture, and that venture has the following characteristics. And from there, you can build the networks that I use here where people are connected because they are partners in the same venture. Now, and so you know, just like networks among relatives, among friends, uh, or social media networks, you can build networks um, that show you kind of the, uh, the landscape of connections, of business connections among these people over a hundred years. Yeah. And just how this landscape changes over time and, and what happens if some of these trades are no longer available, you see gaps appearing in this landscape, in this network. Yeah. So it gives you kind of a bird's eye perspective of the business network of these people at the time. Right. Yeah, I noticed there were times like uh, uh, when, 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 when Samalo loses the monopoly, I guess, to, uh, I, I guess to Asia, you know, that there's certainly effects. Yeah. And I, I noticed, and, and you also, it gave you insight, I thought, I th into... Yeah, obviously there were some certain big families that were kind of generally constantly involved, and you 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 could find the people though too that kind of like the guy with one share or you know mm -hmm. the the captains that would cut. Yet I noticed there were some captains who that was an opportunity. It seemed like an opportunity, uh, maybe a dangerous opportunity, but uh, to captain a privateering uh, or corsairing vessel would might. Yeah might be able to uh, you might end up hanged or you might end up uh, with a with i guess a leg up in the in the in the landscape uh anyway um you you also mentioned that there's basically three different types of corsairing campaign and actually before we get into that okay i have noticed and you you mentioned this in the book sometimes this might just be just uh, something that's only in english or american i don't know i have noticed that in some books Corsair has a very specific meaning, uh, and then other times it's kind of generalized as privateer or even pirate. The, what these terms sometimes are interchangeable, sometimes they're not. What what is your take on that? And and do you, do you want to get into that at all? What is how should we be using Corsair? Yeah, I, I think it's 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 useful to give listeners a, a better sense of what these terms mean because, as, as you said, they're often used interchangeably, and, yeah. and that's certainly not correct. So, um, first of all, it has nothing to do with. Uh, I guess there's a software company, right? Corsair. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> memories. That's not what it's concerned about and uh, concerned with. And I think there's also an American insurance company called Corsair. So yeah. if you type Corsair into your um, search engine, you will find um, different results that have nothing to do with this historical context. So setting that aside, um, the history, in fact, um, has different branches. So where the name Corsair comes from um, is uh, its historical roots are in Kors uh, is one Corso. And there's also a Turkish name, if I remember correctly, and I don't know if I pronounce this correctly, it's Ottoman Turkish, it's something like Korsar. Okay. Um, this has to do with um, religious conflict in the Mediterranean during the Middle Ages, where essentially um, 
leaders at the time, rulers at the time, princes, um, were involved in religious conflicts. So for instance, the Ottoman Empire, and then also the whatever remained of the Christian Crusaders, um, who then had their strongholds on Malta and, and, um, and other islands. So they would hire these forces, additional auxiliary force, naval forces, in order to support them in naval warfare. And this is where the, uh, the name Corso comes from, roughly speaking. Right. Right? So it has, it's kind of religiously tinged. Uh, and there you have these, these um, conflicts between Muslims on the one hand and Christian forces on the other hand, and both, both use the same practice. Um, so this is one story. There's a French scholar who did a lot of work on that. But um, the origin of the kind of privateering and corsairs that I'm talking about um, is also in the Middle Ages and slightly different. Um, it's the following. So imagine you have a trader, say from Saint-Malo in the Middle Ages, uh, who is supposed to transport some goods to an Italian port. On its way, he gets robbed, say, by an English ship. Uh, so what is he supposed to do? Of course, he wants to get his wares back or he needs to get you know, some, some refunding in some ways, right? Uh, he wants yeah. to be compensated for his losses. So what is he supposed to do? He's a merchant, he can't defend himself. So one option of course would be to travel to the nearest English court and complain to the English court and say, one of your compatriots has robbed my ship and has taken all my wares. I want to be compensated. What can you do about this? Um, of course, in most cases, this English court will say, well, your problem, not mine. <laughs> I can't help you with that, right? Um, so if more and more of these kinds of events would happen, there is a danger, of course, that these kind of what are mostly private conflicts between one merchant from one um, area and say a pirate or a privateer from another area. It's a private conflict. If there are enough of those and they don't get contained, there's the danger that they escalate into a conflict between the two princedoms or kingdoms in that right. case. So you really want to contain these private struggles and conflicts so that they don't escalate. And so what's been in place, it's um, a a, a law of reprisals, whereby you could then go to your own sovereign, that is your own prince, and declare, so I have been robbed of the following goods, you have to prove that, um, by this English pirate, say, or this English privateer. And your ruler will give you a license to rob any English ship that crosses your way to compensate yourself for your losses. Yeah. So yeah. you could pick any English ship and rob them in return, and you would have this legal document that entitles you to do that. So that was a way to, to try to contain that. The interesting thing here is it's an ex post measure to avoid conflict. Yeah. So the first incident has already happened. And after the fact, you get a letter of reprisal in order to get compensated after the fact. Over the course of history, this turned around into an ex-ante procedure. And this is where we are with, with my case here. So with the onset of war, rulers handed out these kinds of letters, not as reprisals, yeah. but envisioning that most likely during war, you will encounter merchant ships of the enemy and you are now entitled to rob them, even though they haven't robbed you in the past. Yeah. Right? 
So it's now projected into the future that you have a license to legally capture the trade of an enemy. Again, there is the danger that this will escalate. And so it's, it's also contained within the bounds of local law, that is your own ruler, meaning that you're only supposed to do that during times of war, not in peacetime. Whereas the original notion where you try to, to, to get compensated, that was in peacetime. Yeah, okay. So this has all changed. Now we're talking only about wartime. Um, you are not supposed to um, rob commerce ships of your own country, of right. course. Yes. Stranger things have happened. Yes. Have happened. Um, you are supposed to respect the rights of neutrals. So if the Dutch, for instance, are not involved in a war between the French and the English, you're not supposed to rob the commerce ships of the Dutch. Yeah. Um, those things, for instance. And so in order to make you stay within the bounds of law, you had to put down a security deposit, for instance. Yeah. Uh, when you come back, you have to prove that the ship that you have taken was actually a rightful price, that you have the right to do that. So was it actually an English ship with whom the French were at war at the time. So you have to prove that. You have to bring witnesses in front of the court. So the Admiralty Court will then judge that as a good price. They will also check if you have the right documents, for instance, and if you're entitled to do this. So there is a whole legal apparatus around this is make sure that this does not degenerate into piracy. And that's the third, the, or the last distinction I would like to make. Privateering, right is called in English privateering because it's um, financed by private merchantmen. That's why it's called privateering. Um, so they get the license from their, gov uh, their, their government, their ruler or their state, um, but the financing is on the side of private merchants. Um, this in French is called, they're called corsaires. Um, and of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, that comes from this old root uh, of Course, course. Yeah. It still keeps this old name, but it still means the same thing as privateering in English. So, privately fitted out ships that um, go on to um, a campaign of um, private war at sea and they carry a license that has been issued by their respective state. Um, and then there's another name, unfortunately, for it in French, which is called Guerre de Course. So course is again, you know, another name that shows up there, which means essentially the same. All of these things are very different and clearly distinct from piracy. Piracy mostly means you're outside of the boundaries of the law, at yeah. least of the local law. Right. Um, so whatever you prey on as a pirate, you do this indiscriminately. You don't care whether it's an ally, a foe, or a yeah. neutral. I, I, I even... I, I don't remember who it was, but I even remember there was one captain who a pirate captain was fired because an English captain, his the crew didn't like that he wasn't attacking enough English vessels. He was letting them pass on by. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, of course, now, it's a fine line, right? I mean, privateers could become yeah, uh, it yeah, uh, I, and I, I imagine that, and especially just like you talk about how. Uh, it was very easy for uh, a French vessel to be on the Pacific side of South America, uh, trading illegally with Spanish. Uh, I'm sure yeah. some of the guys who were involved in uh, these uh, 
you know, these, uh, I guess, small scale military naval raids, you know, some of them, I'm sure, weren't quite as picky as others, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but and with that said, you mentioned that there are basically three different types of, of, of corsairing uh, campaigns that uh, mm-hmm. take place out of, of San Malo. And would you like to talk about what those were? Where, what, where did they go? What kind of, uh, what, yeah. what are they looking for? Um, yeah, they can be mainly distinguished by size, size of the ships and the reach of the operation. Yeah. So the, the small, so think of it in, in terms of ex- more and more extensive zones of operation. Okay. So the most narrow zone is around the English Channel, just along the coastline. Mm-hmm. So um, accordingly, you have rather small ships. I mean, there can be really small ones, like six tons, yeah. 10 people on board and one cannon. That could be enough. And I- and. I just want to. Yeah. I, I was kind of surprised. It seems like there is a lot of uh, privateering and piracy. I d- just not, you know, uh, just being from the United States. I was not aware that. I guess the uh, the English Channel could have been quite. It seemed like it might be a little bit of a dangerous place sometimes, <laughs> for sure. Um, anyway, I'm sorry to to to. Yeah. To well, well the, the reason is that it's of course the main passageway if you come back from the colonies in the Americas as yeah. well as the Indias and you want to reach back to the English coast, the Dutch coast, German or Scandinavian ports, you will have to pass through the channel. Gotcha. And so if you have local knowledge of that channel and your goal is to undermine the trade or the returns from trade of your enemy, in most cases for the French, those were the Dutch and the English. Yeah. So this is where you would target them. And what would help is if you have local knowledge of the coastlines. And so some of them had this expert knowledge, could exploit it, and they would go out in the fog mainly. So winter was the, the primary hunting season in a way. <laughs> yeah, right. Because there was lots of fog, you could hide, and you can rely on your local knowledge. Um, Saint Malo had the distinct advantage that it has a, had a sizable community of Irish expats who had to flee Ireland for religious reasons. And um, so they were in the services or they'd settled in Samalo um, and um, intermarried with the local um, population as well. And they engaged in privateering on the French side and of course had lots of knowledge of the, of the coastlines along the Irish Sea. So this is one area of operation. The next one extends beyond the channel and it's kind of like a triangle that goes from the Southern Irish coast down to the Spanish coast and then to the very northwestern tip of of Spain. So that kind of triangle there, um, that was um, the the, the second important zone that is basically you capture ships before they even enter the channel. Right. Uh, Because you are starting to venture out into the high seas, you need larger ships to operate there. So ships were larger than those that did their um, they're hunting in the English Channel. And then you have the so-called, you know, the blue water um, privateering, blue water because you venture out into the deep seas that is out across the Atlantic, as you just mentioned, along the coastlines of South America, even venturing into the Indian Ocean, so far away places. And um, those kinds of expeditions were, of course, much more expensive. Um, they they um, entailed entire fleets of privateering ships much larger ships, I mean, really big ones, who could also, I mean, usually they refrain from it, but who could also engage in um, battles with 
in fact, um, ships of the line. So they were strong enough. These were the yeah. biggest ones. Uh, so uh, these are the kind of the three theaters of operation. Oh, great. No, thank you. Yeah. And uh, now, uh, Another uh, a pair of individuals I'd like to talk about. Uh, would you like to talk about who who the Marion brothers are, or Marion oh, brothers? Mar yeah, Marion. Yeah. I realized after I said that I'm giving that the American okay. pronunciation. Excuse me. Pardon. Yeah. Yeah, I I have to say I do not know much about their specific history, like where they come from, who they were, etc. Uh, it just so happens that. Um, rather detailed documents about their ventures, their enterprises have been preserved. Yeah. So I use them to illustrate how you would advertise for a privateering voyage. So literally they put advertisements out in public um, trying to entice potential shareholders um, to chip in, right? To participate yeah. in the voyage. And they use kind of, you know, rather... Um, interesting language to describe what they expect from this voyage, right? Um, so they use dramatic terms like, oh, we have hired a successful captain who has proven his success in the past because he brought in so many rich prizes and we expect the same for him from him and right now the hunting season has started again. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, use this kind of language quite literally and you know, right. If you really want to participate now is the time and of course like any good salesman they would also say like oh only very few tickets are left right <laughs> tickets means shares of course you better hurry if you if you want to be part of this great adventure and so these are kind of advertisements and that have been preserved for these two brothers um yeah they have been famously involved in slave trading as well um so that, that is the background really it's just yeah really no that's all right i mean i don't sometimes yeah. what w the reasons i ask these questions you know i i probably had like 30 questions by the time i was finished with your book yeah. and i got to cut them down and and uh and I, I i try to give a little they they seemed interesting to me for sure as i was uh reading okay now i, I also want to talk about we're going to ask about chateaubriand so oh really yeah um, I, you know, if we, if you'd uh, like to talk about, well, we'll talk about him uh, in a little bit later. All right. Um, now I do for now, let's talk about, um, because this is a very legal process. What happens mm -hmm. after a uh, captain had taken another prize? What is the, the legal process that happens after a prize is taken or what are they supposed yeah. to do? I guess what's, I mean, a pirate, I guess, would sail off to Madagascar or whatever, but uh, what do you, what is the, what is going on here? Yeah. So first things first, once you captured that ship and um, you have taken it, then you want to put, you want to take control of that ship. So ideally you want to preserve the ship that you captured, unless it's not worth it, then you may sink it and take the goods on board. Um, but let's say you want to keep that ship together with the goods, right? Um, you want to take control of it. So you need to place what's called a price crew on board of the captured ship, which means when you start off in the first place, um, the crew size of a private cheating ship is noticeably larger than on other ships because right. you need to price crew eventually, right? So you put them on board. Um, you want to also um, take as prisoners, of course, um, the captain of that ship and some other people who would then serve as witnesses in front of your admiralty court. 
So either you tow that ship and bring it to the nearest French, if we're talking about French privateers, to the nearest French port. It can be your home port, Saint-Malo, but if it so happens, for instance, that the port of La Rochelle is closer, then of course you go to La Rochelle. Um, or if you happen to be near a French colony in Haiti, for instance, which back then was uh, a major French colony, you would go to that port, right? Gotcha. Um, the same for the English. If it's an English privateer, they may go back to London or to Bristol or Liverpool. But um, if Bombay at the time was closer, then you go to right. Bombay. Okay, so that's that. Okay. So let's suppose you arrive at your home port um, and then... Um, you have to set up all the papers. So first of all, your licenses that you were entitled to make this capture in the first place. Then you would have to have an, an inventory in a way of all the goods that you have taken. Um, then witness statements from your own crew as well as from the capture crew, what had happened. Did everything work according to the law so that you didn't massacre anybody on board, for instance, you're not supposed to do that, right? So they were still prisoners of war and you had to treat them appropriately. So all those things you had to bring in front of um, an, an admiralty court. Um, in this case, uh, Samalu was also the seat of a local admiralty court. So you could do it there. You bring it uh, in front of them and they, the, the, the judges there, would judge this as a good prize if everything went according to the law or the regulations um, um, have been followed, for instance. Yeah. So once that judgment has been made, then um, uh, a, an auction would be scheduled. And this had to be publicly announced as well. Um, I have also an example in the book how this looks like. It's really you know, a, a public announcement um, that you would post somewhere um, that now there's, there's a ship that has been captured. It has the following size. Um, it entails the following cargo. All of these things uh, are supposed to be auctioned off. Um, then they would usually do an auction by the candle that is now lighting up a candle and that would burn down. Um, there are variations of that. You know, sometimes would burn down three times. And so your bids had to be placed until that candle would be extinguished. And then it goes to the highest bidder. Okay, so once that has been done, um, you get the proceeds from those auctions, but of course there are some um, court fees that you had to pay and some administrative fees as well. Yeah. Um, those had to be paid off um, out of those proceeds. And then you would, once you're done with all these fees, um, then you would um, distribute whatever is re uh, remaining among your shareholders and among your crew. And then it depends a little bit if you paid some advances to your crew. So to create an incentive for people to enlist on privateering ships, I mean, most people would prefer to enlist on privateering ships because they have in mind that, oh, we're going to catch all these glittering prizes and we'll get rich. Uh, right. Of course, it didn't always happen. Um, so, but sometimes to create an additional incentive, you would pay advancements. And so they had to be deducted, of course. Um, yeah. Otherwise, the crew would um, receive about a third of the proceeds. And the remaining two thirds would then be um, shared by the shareholders according to what they put into the voyage in the first place. And that concludes it. At the end, there would be an account. Unfortunately, we have very few documents of these accounts. So that makes it very hard to estimate the, uh, the profits that could be made from privateering. 
Um, I make use of the few documents that can be found, but this is of course mostly anecdotal. It's, it's for very few ships that we know this, right? Um, but it allows us at least to reconstruct what had to happen. Um, and it's uh, what had to happen is also laid out in the legal prescriptions that are still preserved, of course. Yeah. So this is essentially what happens. Yeah. And well, and then vice versa. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I also want to get into what would happen with the, if you were captured. Uh, what obviously that you, if it's your ship, you've lost all of that, but for the captain and crew who are captured, uh, uh, other than them being taken back and used as the witnesses, what uh, are they just uh, stuck in whatever port that they end up in, or are they imprisoned or sent back? You know, do they catch a, do you, do you have any idea what happens to them, basically? Yeah, the couple of options. One is, of course, the exchange of prisoners, because, I mean, it, it happens on both sides. Right. right? Um, Typically, towards the end of these wars, um, the English were more successful, um, and therefore more French prisoners ended up on the British side than British prisoners on the French side. But gotcha. uh, I guess on a regular basis, there were exchanges of prisoners, and or uh, you would pay a ransom um, to free them. Um, and the other option would be to enlist them in your own services. Yeah, That's, that has also happened. You don't want to use it extensively, of course. Um, right, right, yeah. Uh, but if given a choice, if you are a lowly sailor, why not? Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, well, one last question I want to get to, and this is a little bit off topic uh, from the book as well. But um, I, I just found it of note because I, I uh, there's, there's like a common conception, uh, I guess, and maybe it's just in America now that I'm thinking about it, that everybody has these giant families back in the, in say the 17th century. And in, in Saint-Malo uh, from, I, I have written down here that uh, from 1681 to 1792, 88% of families consisted of three or fewer members. So is that just, uh, I mean, is this just like one of these misconceptions we have about the past that uh, everybody had like 10 brothers and sisters because six of them died of disease or whatever by the time they were five or six is the kind of thing I hear. Um, but this doesn't seem to be the case, uh, obviously, from from at least in, in uh, at least in, in from your research. Yeah, uh, I probably didn't make that clear enough then in the book. Um, so these are not real families. Okay. So, what, what I try, so. I apologize. It, it may have been uh, something that I, did, that I didn't catch. No, families, families were large. Um, in fact, um, these were extremely fertile. So yeah. very often they had up to like 16 children, for instance. Okay, um, gotcha. <laughs> women, you can only imagine. Yeah, um, yeah, really. It would be, uh, <laughs> that's something. The family that I'm talking about there that have only a few members, uh, this is about the families that I try to reconstruct from the partnership records. So not the family records. So these yeah. are the records of contracts of venture partnerships. And what I try to do is to figure out, okay, how many of these partners are actually relatives of each other? So not every single family member is a member of those partnerships, hence gotcha. the low numbers. Yeah. So it turns out that within partnerships on average, um, the, there are few partners who are relatives of each other. 
Okay. That, that's kind of yeah. I'm sorry. I must. I completely must have misunderstood. Uh, no, that's something. fine. That's, uh, uh, oh, okay. Well, at any rate, um, uh, that's kind of. Uh, I think about where uh, I. I think we should end now. Uh, I think that's about all the time I want to take from you, uh, Dr. Hillman. If you uh, have more questions, I'm really well. I do want to save, in particular, one more question uh, for those of you uh, listening to this. I'm going to start a YouTube series. I'm going to specifically ask uh, Dr. Hillman here about Rene Auguste de Chateaubriand, uh, who is uh, uh, someone else. We're gonna. I'm going to start up something new with a, a little promo YouTube series for this. So. Uh, uh, look out for that. Um, is, I'll put a link to, my, to make sure you can find my YouTube channel in the show notes as well with everything else. Um, okay. And I, I did, like I said, I, I literally did have twice as many questions written down. Uh, I always have to cut because I'm always, I, I want to be, you know, I, I could sit here and chat with you all day, to be honest, but I always like to be uh, you know, considerate of everyone's time, that's for sure. So anyway, folks, once again, uh, follow the link in the show notes to buy this book, and you're going to get a lot more answers to whatever questions you have. Uh, Dr. Hillman, thank you very much. And uh, folks, until next time, uh, see ya. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, it's out of pirates coming, listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship It's a mutiny What's happening here? You're no longer in control And we're drinking up your beer This is now a democratic Egalitarian pirate ship So enjoy your trip Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny This is a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship It's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship